Hi church, my name is Carrie, and we are glad that you have joined us for online church this morning. Before we hear from Gerald, we have a few things that you should know about. The first one is Easter is next Sunday. It's my favorite Sunday of the year, and I hope that you'll join us. We will be at the high school stadium at 10 a.m. on Easter Sunday. We are going to have a choir. If you are interested in jumping in and, and joining us for the choir, that would be amazing. Email Ricky for that. Um, we will also be having an egg hunt for the kiddos. It should be a really great time. We could use some more egg donations. So if you are able to bring in some plastic eggs that are taped shut, we would be very, very appreciative. And we just really hope that you'll come and join us for our Easter celebration on Sunday. Also on Friday, April 7th, we will be having a Good Friday service. It's at seven in the evening in our worship center. It's always a really good time to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice and uh, we hope that you'll join us. Also coming up at the end of April on Saturday, April 29th at 3 p.m., we are going to have our women's conference. It's called Cultivate, God Comes Where He's Wanted. We will be spending some time together hearing from Lisa Haugen, who's our speaker this year. We'll be having extended times of worship with Rebecca. We'll be having some breakout sessions that um, are designed to cultivate our hunger and longing for the Lord. We really hope that you ladies will join us. So mark your calendars, April 29th, 3 p.m. You can sign up online or come talk to me. That's all I have for you this morning, church. I hope that you'll join us for Easter next week, and now we'll hear from Gerald. Hello, ABC family. My name is Gerald. I have the distinct privilege of serving as the discipleship pastor here at Atascadero Bible Church. And it's been a while, but uh, last weekend, my family and I, we took off. We, we skipped town, went up to Folsom, and celebrated a baby shower for our daughter Anna and her husband Ryan. I've got a little photo here of the group that was together, and you can see that right in the center of the photo, in white, is our daughter Anna. And it's a little bit hard to tell, but she's actually cradling a little baby bump there. There is a young little boy growing inside of her. She's due in May. And it's her husband, Ryan, with that epic mustache over her left shoulder. Uh, standing next to her is her brother, our son, Jesse, and his wife, Leah. And their two kids down in front, little Judah and little Elena. And then Lisa and I are on the left-hand side of the photo, and my parents, James and Dolores, are on the right side. So we were together, and there were four generations of Haugen men there uh, this last weekend. And it was just fun uh, to interact and to see the differences between the generations. My parents were born in the 40s, so they're part of that traditionalist generation. Uh, oddly enough, there are no baby boomers represented in this photo because I was born early in the Gen X movement, uh, or at the tail end of it. So I'm Generation X, and our children, Lisa and my children, Jesse and Anna, they're actually in that millennial or Gen Y generation. And then the rest of them are right in that Gen Z, the generation that is still being born. So, um, and one thing that was really obvious to us last weekend is that there are differences in the generations. And if you want to know what some of those differences are, just start answering questions like, do you read the newspaper or do you get your news online? And if you are reading your news, are you reading the obituaries or are you reading evidence of current events. You know, I think it matters. And you can tell by how people answer those questions what generation they are in. Maybe answer this question. When you listen to music, is it on the radio or is it a podcast or a stream, right? So you can tell some of the differences of the generations by that. 
There is a generational gap that comes out with the differences of opinions, the differences of politics, the differences of beliefs between generations. And that's exactly what Jesus brings up in today's passage out of Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is going to highlight for us two generations. It's a, it's a generation that the text calls the evil generation or this generation. And the second generation is what I call the Jesus generation. So today we will look at these two generations and we will look at the, the gap between these two. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, we'll begin reading at verse 38. And before we read, let's bow and unite our hearts in prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, thanking you and praising you for who you are. Thanking you for these words that we're about to read, words that you inspired by your Holy Spirit. Many of the words have been spoken by your Son, our Lord Jesus, the Christ. And words that you've preserved by your Spirit for thousands of years so that we can read them and hear your voice today. So would you, by the power of your Spirit, tune our ears to your voice so that we receive from you what it is you want us to learn about you and about us and about life on this earth. So we pray that you would have your way as we read and unpack your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, turning to Matthew 12, beginning at verse 38, we pick up the story here. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So if you had your ears in tune as I read that, you heard the word generation repeated at least three times, right? And Jesus is uniquely responding to a request by the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says it's only an evil and adulterous generation that seek to see a sign. So they are asking to see another sign, and they've been witnessing signs that he's been doing right and left. But it's as, as though they're saying, Jesus, we want to see another sign from you. Uh, a sign that is done in the way we want it done, where and when we want it done, the way we want to see it done. They're asking him to do something, I think, according to their will. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you ever ask God for a sign? Does the dialogue in your head ever go something like this? Lord, if you just let me get a warning instead of this speeding ticket, then I will know fill in the blank. Or how about this? Lord, if you give me that promotion at work, then I'll know that you love me. Are you ever prone to ask God for a sign like that? You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they'd seen enough signs from Jesus over, over the, the period that they'd been walking around with him and witnessing his ministry. And just like they did when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, they were asking for another sign. And they 
they had dubious motives. They were wanting to use this sign to trap him. To, he wanted to use it against him. In response to this request, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And that's the first descriptor of this evil generation is that they are adulterous. So why does Jesus call them adulterous? You see, the Old Testament uses this sort of language to refer to the nation of Israel and their tendency to turn their back on the one true God, God the Father, and to turn and follow gods of their own making, other gods, false gods. Listen to Ezekiel 16, verse 32. It says, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. The adulterous wife there is the nation of Israel who is prone to receive strangers, strange gods, rather than the one true God who is their husband. That whole chapter is ripe full of this sort of language. God also spoke in this sort of way through the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 3, verse 20, Jeremiah says, Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel declares the, the Lord. And though he had every right to turn his back on his faithless people, God continued to invite Israel back to himself. Listen to how he reaches out to them and, and shows his heart to them through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 30, 15 says this, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength, but you were unwilling. Do you hear God with open arms inviting them back to, to turn their hearts' affections toward him, the one true God, again? And here in today's passage, right here in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is saying to the scribes and the Pharisees that they really are part of that same evil, adulterous generation that God has been holding his arms out to for decades. They, like them, have forsaken the one true God and turned to the God of their own making. And to this, Jesus says, there's no sign that will be given to you. You're asking for a sign, but I'm not going to give you any sign except that of the prophet Jonah. That's in verse 39. Now, let's remember who Jonah is. Jonah was the, the one who God called to take a message to the enemies of Israel, the Ninevites. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and Assyria was the one who broke in and captured the, the northern kingdom and took them into captivity. So when God calls Jonah and puts him on this assignment to send him to Nineveh, you can imagine why Jonah is pushing against this idea. The last thing that he wants to do is represent a compassionate and a gracious God, his God, to the nation's enemies. And so, understandably, Jonah heads off in the opposite direction. If Nineveh was this way, and that's where God is telling him to go, Jonah takes off this way and jumps on a, a, a ship going to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. And in a state of depression, he finds a quiet place in that ship and he falls asleep. Well, as you read through the book of Jonah, you know that God sends a storm on the sea and the ship is about ready to break up. And the captain and the crew come and wake him up and say, what are you doing here and what is going on? And that's when Jonah says, uh, my bad, guys, this storm is because I'm running away from God. If you throw me overboard, you will be saved. So they do that. They throw him overboard and that crew and that captain and their ship is saved. 
and God appoints a great fish that swallows up Jonah. And the next three days, Jonah is in the belly of that great fish in the midst of a three-day prayer meeting, at the end of which God causes that fish to spit him out onto dry land and then recommissions him, saying, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against that city. And so Jonah, having kind of learned his lesson, heads off toward Nineveh, and he preaches what is the most efficient sermon I think recorded ever in the Bible. One sentence, Jonah goes into Nineveh and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Not a great sermon, right? One sentence, and what happens? The whole city repents in sackcloth, ashes, and fasting. This must be the most efficient sermon in the Bible. And Jesus goes on and he says, Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish. And so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. This is the sign I am going to give you, Jesus says. After three days, Jonah emerged from his floating grave to proclaim Nineveh's destruction. And as a result of hearing that message, the people of Nineveh repented and were saved. God relented from his plan of destruction. And in a similar fashion, after three days, Jesus would emerge from the grave and proclaim humanity's salvation for sin. And as a result of hearing this message of the gospel, of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, just like the men of Nineveh, all who hear and respond through repentance will be saved. Jesus goes on and he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn this generation, for they repented. That's verse 41. This evil generation is, it's adulterous, and they remain unrepentant. Even the pagans of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. And Jesus is saying, you need to repent too. And he goes on and he says, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Speaking of himself, something greater than the world's most effective preacher, that prophet who is famous for preaching a message of repentance to God's enemies. Someone greater than Jonah is here. That's what Jesus is saying of himself. And he goes on and he says, the queen of the south will rise up and condemn this generation. Well, now who's the queen of the south? We might need a little more context on that. So I wanna turn to 1 Kings 10 and read just a few verses there that help us understand who this queen of the south is. So now reading from 1 Kings 10, verses one through five. Now when the queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. In other words, seeing all the excellence and the wisdom 
that Solomon is and was and had, she became breathless at this wisdom that Solomon had. And Jesus is saying, this generation, you scribes and Pharisees, you're adulterous because you're unwise. Even the pagan queen of the south traveled miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he goes on and he says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Speaking this of himself, someone greater than the king who is known for being wise above all others is here. So in summary, what Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees is, you seek a sign, evil generation, but you need to become breathless at my wisdom. You need to allow my wisdom to grip you and you need to repent at my preaching. You need to repent because you're adulterous. And if you don't, in the future, you will be even worse off than you are right now. And Jesus continues that. He continues his response to the scribes and the Pharisees by giving them a rather graphic illustration. So this evil generation is adulterous. And he goes on and now he reads and he says this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Now, a note of clarification here. The words unclean spirit are synonymous with demon or evil spirit. So when you hear Jesus speaking of an unclean spirit there, what he's speaking into is the, the evil spirit world of demons, right? These are very real spiritual beings, and they are working under the orders of Satan himself, opposing all that God is and all that God does. And these truths are truths that Jesus and his audience knew to be true. And so the question here is that why does Jesus call them empty? That's the second point that describes this evil generation. First point, they're adulterous. They've turned from the one true God to serve other gods. Second point, they're empty. And he uses this story to explain that. So I want us to unpack seven biblical truths about demons for us to understand what is being said here. Five of the points are taught right here in this passage from Matthew 12. Two of them are taught otherwhere. The first point is this. Demons must obey Jesus and those on mission with Jesus. See, previous to Matthew 12, the, the, the first part of this gospel, Matthew has recorded story after story after story of people bringing demon-oppressed folks to Jesus and him healing them all. He cast the demons out with a word. And you can catch a glimpse of that in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, for instance. There are others as well. So that's the first truth. Demons are subject to Jesus. Secondly, they're also subject to those who are on mission with Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, verse 17, we see that Jesus commissions 72 of his disciples to go out. And they come back and they're rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So those people who have been commissioned and are on mission with Jesus have authority over demons as well. That's the first truth. 
Secondly, demons can cause physical affliction. We see this in the book of Matthew as well. Chapter 12, verse 22, for instance, a demon is causing that person to be blind and mute. In Mark chapter 9, verse 25, we see it explained that a demon is causing another person to be mute and deaf. So there are physical manifestations that result from a demonic infestation. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 10, we see a story of a woman who has a disabling spirit and she's hunched over. She can't straighten herself up. She has back issues. And this is one that really hits home with me. I've been prone to have back issues that don't have any other physiological explanation to them. Twice my back has gone out as I've been praying with people, once overseas praying for my mentor as he was preaching, and once just in a Starbucks in SoCal as I'm praying with a person from my small group. Both times my back seized and I hit the ground and I was immobilized by the pain. I'm convinced that that was somehow influenced by the spiritual forces of darkness, by the influence of demons. So the second point, demons can cause physical affliction. Third, demons can dwell in a person like a person dwells in a house. And we get this from verses 43 and 44 in today's text. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, passes through waterless places, seeking rest, it finds none, then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. So demons inhabit people in the way people inhabit a house. Fourth truth, demons are most comfortable dwelling in a person. Did you hear what it said? He, when it leaves a person, it goes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. There's some level of unsettlement for that demon when it is out of a person. And so it comes and it comes back. It's interesting that it's called waterless places. The human body is roughly 60% water, so there is some kind of comfort that comes from a, a demon being inside a human body. And if you remember the story of Jesus casting out demons from the, from the Gadarene demoniac, the demons say, don't send us out of the region, send us into those pigs. And Jesus says, go. He gave them permission and under his authority, they leave the man and they go into a herd of pigs and the herd of pigs rush over a cliff into the sea and are drowned, right? So there's some level of comfort that comes from demons inhabiting a person. Fifth truth, demons are pridefully possessive. Did you catch in the text, the demon says, I will return to my house. He considers that person his house. There's pride there, which is the, the core sin of all humanity and the core sin of Satan himself. So, of course, it's the core sin of demons. Sixth, demons are eager to fill a spiritual vacuum. Did you hear the description? He, he comes back and he finds that house, that person, empty, swept, and put into order. There's a, a spiritual vacancy in that person after the demon leaves. There's a spiritual vacuum. The, the Greek word there that is translated as empty literally means to be without occupants. So that person is without occupants. He, he's empty. And this is why the New Age movement is so dangerous. There is a thing in the New Age movement called empty mind meditation, where the goal of that meditation is to empty the mind in order to be one with the surroundings, right? 
But according to this passage, when we engage in that sort of activity, that sort of meditation, we are opening ourselves up for demonic oppression. And in contrast, the Bible says that Christian meditation is to sound like this. Colossians 3 verse 2, Paul says, set your mind on things above. So you don't empty your mind, you fill your mind by thinking about things that are above. He says it this way in Philippians 4 verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So by contrast, Christian meditation is one where we fill our minds with the things above, the things of excellence, the things of purity, not emptying our minds. You see, the house, the person, Jesus says, is empty. It's empty spiritually even though it has been swept and put into order. Now, these terms represent the behavioral reforms that come with dead religion or self-righteous or legalistic religion. The floor has been swept. In other words, when you look at it, when you look at the house, things have been cleaned up a bit at first glance. And the Pharisees had an elaborate rhythm of purification. They had rituals that they would do to clean the outside of their bodies. And things have been put into order. On the surface, their behavior looks pious, right? It looks like they are seeking to live according to the law of God. This is a description by Jesus of the scribes and Pharisees, the people that he's talking to. And these scribes and Pharisees set themselves up as those who are monitoring um, the law, right? They are the ones who came and looked at Jesus and said, hey, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. They're also the ones who looked at Jesus as he was ready to heal a man on the Sabbath and asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They were very concerned with the external things. They were self-righteous about keeping the law as they had interpreted it. And what Jesus is saying is that they had swept the floors and they had put things in order, but in the end, they're still just empty. You may have experienced this in a legalistic experience in church where you lived under the heavy thumb of self-righteous leaders who were more concerned with the external way they were viewed or respected by others rather than the internal transformation of the heart. And if that's you, I am so sorry. That is not what Jesus has in mind. That's not what Jesus is about. Jesus is concerned with the internal transformation of the heart. In fact, he calls these scribes and Pharisees out in Matthew 23, verse 27 and following. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're white and you're pretty, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. So Jesus is saying, if that's you, if you are more concerned about externals, you're empty on the inside. You're a hypocrite. Jesus is saying that the Pharisees' lives, they look swept and put into order, but they're empty spiritually. And as a result, our seventh spiritual truth, demons are eager to bring other evil spirits into such a house that is empty. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Look, you may be performing exorcisms, Pharisees and scribes, but when that person, when the demon leaves that person, they're empty. There's a spiritual vacuum. And the likelihood is, is that demon will bring seven evil buddies back and that last state of that person will be worse than the first. And that, 
folks describes this evil generation. They're adulterous, they're unfaithful, they're unwise, and they are empty. They're spiritually dead. And as we continue to read, Matthew shows us that there's a second generation, one that I call on your sermon notes, the Jesus generation. And so we will begin um, to examine the Jesus generation as we read verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now some of you were out there and were paying attention. And when I read that, you noticed that I skipped verse 47. Honestly, I didn't. It's just not in my Bible here. The ESV omits verse 47, <laughs> not because I'm picking and choosing my favorite verses. Believe me, if I was doing that, it wouldn't be this verse that I would omit. <laughs> there are other verses that I would have rather omitted from today's message. The fact is, is that other manuscripts exclude this. There's a thing called textual criticism. And the, the, the Bibles that we hold today are what they are because we have thousands of manuscripts that inform what this is. And the oldest, most reliable manuscripts do not include verse 47. So some of your translations will omit it with a footnote like mine does that says, some manuscripts insert verse 47, which says, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. And this evidence uh, marks recollection of this story in Mark chapter 3 includes this verse, so it's, it's not surprising that some manuscripts included it for the sake of clarity, but it's probable that Matthew did not include this in his original manuscript of his gospel. Either way, church, we do not lose or gain anything by its inclusion or exclusion. So, here we go. We pick it up from here. This generation, the Jesus generation, he's saying, is a faithful generation. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my family. That's verse 50. That's what Jesus said. So that makes me ask the question, well, what is the Father's will? And the Father's will has always been, I want you to return to me. Remember what he said in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15? He says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Our God is a God who is always inviting people to turn back to him. His heart is for his adulterous people to return. And Jesus said it this way when he started his earthly ministry. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew 4, verse 17. Mark records the beginning of Jesus' ministry in this way. In verse 15 of his first chapter, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We return to God through this thing called repentance. We literally do a spiritual about-face where we go from t looking at sin and, and pursuing sin, we about-face, and now we are looking at Christ and pursuing Christ. And we find rest through faith in Him, which is why Jesus said in the end of Matthew chapter 11, He says, Come to me and I will give you rest. 
This has always been the Father's will for his people. Even the people of Nineveh were welcomed back when they repented at Jonah's preaching. So Jesus is saying that his generation is not adulterous, but it's faithful. That's when you think of a, a husband and a wife, the opposite of being an adulterous husband or an adulterous wife is being a faithful husband or a faithful wife. For Jesus, faithful means family. He's saying, whoever does the will of my father is my mother and my brother and my sister. It's through the process of repentance and faith that they are the ones who return to God and find rest for their weary souls. They find the loving acceptance and the sense of belonging that comes from being part of a healthy, loving family. So my question for you today is which word best describes you? Are you faithful or are you adulterous? Are you pursuing the one true God or are you pursuing the will of yourself? Are you pursuing the will of a God of your own making? And if I'm honest, I think there are parts of my hearts that are in both camps. There's a part of my heart that earnestly desires to fulfill God's will and to follow after him. And there are parts of my heart that are prone to wander. That's why repentance needs to be a regular part of my life. And here's the good news, church. Jesus' invitation stands. He still says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Peter said it this way in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear what we get when we repent and are baptized? We get forgiveness of our sins. It's like the record has been wiped clean because Jesus has made payment for that debt. And we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's a supernatural thing that happens at the moment, at the very instant, a person repents and returns to faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and he takes up residence inside the person. This is called the baptism of the Spirit. Jesus speaks about this in John chapter 14 and in John chapter 16, which I recommend you read later today. Right before his ascension, Jesus also tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that's exactly what Luke records in, in Acts chapter 2. Just a few days later, scholars say it was 10 days after he spoke those words, 10 days after his ascension, the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and fills all the disciples. Acts 2 verse 4 says, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Just as Jesus had promised, they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit and the result of being baptized in the Spirit is being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this generation, this Jesus generation, instead of being adulterous, is faithful and instead of being empty, is full. They are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. This was and is today the prerequisite for involvement in ministry. When the apostles needed to find men to serve the widows who were being neglected, to, to wait tables in Acts chapter 6 so that the apostles could focus on the ministry of the word and prayer, 
they said this. They said, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The one qualification for ministry is that they be full of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what's at the heart of core value one here at Atascadero Bible Church. That value says we will become prayerful and spirit-led. We believe that Jesus is the one who is building his church and he does that by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit leading men and women who are in ministry today. And in order to do this, in order to be prayerful and spirit-led, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is essential to life and ministry of God's people. This is the one thing that God commands us to do over and over again in the New Testament. God commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen to Ephesians 5, verse 18. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, don't be under the influence of alcohol, but be under the influence of the Spirit. And the way that it it is communicated here, the the grammar, the Greek word, that verb for be filled is a present passive imperative. The imperative mood means it's a command. It's passive, meaning the action of it is something that is done to us. So we are filled by somebody else. And the present tense is one that invokes ongoing action. Over and over and over again, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. John Stott, in his amazing book, Baptism in Fullness, says this, He says, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is emphatically not a privilege reserved for some, but a duty resting on all. Like the command to sobriety and self-control, the command to seek the Spirit's fullness is addressed without exception to all the people of God. It's not just a few of us who are to be filled with the Spirit. All of us who confess Jesus as Lord are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Contrary to the evil generation who it's empty, we are to be filled with the Spirit. So that asks the question then, how can I be full of the Holy Spirit? Jesus says this in Luke 11, verse 13. He says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Church, we just need to ask. Our Father is eager to give us the good gift of the Holy Spirit, if we will but ask. Now, folks, we are complex beings, right? We're made of of body and of mind and of spirit, this intangible, invisible thing called our spirit. And we do face complex opposition in this life. We are up against the world and the flesh and the devil. Therefore, it's my habit personally when I pray and and when I continue my relationship with Jesus through prayer, as well as when I pray with other people, to include a time of reflection, a time of, of repentance, a time where I examine my heart and my mind and I look for ways that I have been influenced by the world. And I look for ways or evidence that I have given in to the disordered desires of this fleshly body. And I confess those as sin and I repent of them and I renounce them. Then 
I will pray in the Spirit, commanding the spiritual forces of darkness to be gone that may have been associated with any of those unconfessed sins. And then I ask in Jesus' name for a fresh filling of the Spirit because the spiritual forces of darkness cannot move in a vessel that has been filled with God's Spirit. We are protected and sealed by the Spirit of God when we do that. And there we have it. We have this generation gap. We have the evil generation that's adulterous and empty, and we have the Jesus generation that is faithful and full. Which best describes you? Are you adulterous? Are you empty? Or are you faithful? Are you full? Full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. The good news is this. Those of us who once were part of the adulterous generation, we can now obey God because in Christ we are faithful. We are full of faith. And though we once were empty, we now can obey God because we are full of the Holy Spirit. And that offer stands to you and me today. So let's enter into a time of prayer. And I just encourage you to search your heart and to search your mind and to confess and repent, to renounce, and even command in Jesus' name the spiritual forces of darkness be gone. And then ask, Holy Spirit, come, fill me afresh, make me full, that you might have your way in me. So, Father, that's what we ask. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would bring us to the point of conviction. Uh, Jesus, you said that the job of the Spirit is to convict the world concerning sin. Would you convict us of a sin that we can confess and repent? That we might lay those things down. That we might do this spiritual about face and follow you. And Lord, would you give us the boldness and the faith to command the spiritual forces of darkness to be gone in Jesus' name, knowing that they must obey Jesus and those of us on mission with you, Jesus. And then, Father, we pray right now even that you would fill us afresh with your Spirit, that we might be full, full of faith, full of the Spirit, freed from the spiritual forces of darkness, free to pursue you, free to be emboldened as your representatives on this earth, free to participate in the ministries that you've gifted us for, that your church, when every part is working properly, might build itself up in love according to your design. So have your way in us, have your way through us, and be glorified as you do this. We pray, Jesus, in your matchless name. Amen. Thanks, ABC family. So glad you're leaning in, and I pray that it would be your joy to continue to read God's word and order your life according to it. There is no more abundant life than in Christ full of the Spirit. Have a great week. We love you.